Hi, I'm Rich Jensen. As a special feature for your Sunday listening, here is an exclusive interview with 1981 NBA Finals MVP Cedric Cornbread Maxwell. During this interview, we discuss this year's team, Cedric's career, former Celtics greats, life in the NBA, and life after the NBA. Cedric has an autobiography out, If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the Boston Celtics sideline, locker room, and press box. So, how are you doing today? I cannot complain, my man. I'm just hanging in there another day and another day on this world and, you know, just keep keep it pumping. I, I keep telling, asking everybody, I said, man, I just feel like I've lost two years of my life with this pandemic. Like, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I'm looking at this, at this Omicron variant and I'm like, are we going to have to do this all over again? Well, I'm hoping I took my my booster, so I'm hoping that that's not the case. I'm hoping that you know where that you know eventually whatever it is that as as the Lord would say, this too shall pass. Yep. And if whoever if if it was invented, shame on the person who invented it. But and if it some and if it came from nature, my goodness, I can't believe the first person who ate the bat and then. <laughs> Heard it over and good God, millions and millions of people in the economy. Even listen to Bill Gates talk about it when he said uh, it was first. I think it was about five or six years ago. He was talking about there was going to be a, a pandemic and um, talking about how the, the world was going to lose like seven or eight trillion dollars. Well, mm-hmm. hey, you're a little short, buddy. <laughs> you're a little short on that one. Well, um, I've got a <clears throat> little. Uh, sort of a distant connection um, between the two of us. My dad was uh, a grad student up at UND in the 60s. um, And the basketball team up there, um, not only was Phil Jackson on the team, but coach was Bill Fitch. You are kidding me. Wow. Yep. 66, 67 in there. His assistant was Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers. Yeah. Jimmy Rogers was his, was his assistant back then. Yep, and he looked exactly the same in, like, my dad's 66 yearbook. He looks exactly the same as he did when he was coaching the Celtics, like, you know, 20 years later. Wow, wow. I mean, Jimmy was such a nice guy. And the funny thing about moving over that, you know, six inches to another seat, mm-hmm. it just that, that just wasn't him. He was I think he was a better assistant than he was a head. You know, I kind of, that's that's one of the things that I wonder about, like Mike Zarin, if he knows himself well enough to know that he does not want to be in the in the GM seat. Because, I mean, <laughs> he's, he's going on, what, would, 20 years? I would, been... Yeah, I would hope his, his persona, the way he does things, he's in the perfect position right now of being an influencer, but not ultimately making the, making the decision. I don't, and I think that I look at Mike as he, he's a, I think he's great in things he does, but the feel sometimes of uh, what he does to me is like, okay, analytics is, isn't the only thing about basketball. You can't, you know, you can kind of predict some things, but 
you can't look into a guy's heart to tell you who he really is as a basketball player. So I think I look at him sometimes. I think he weighs on analytics, in my opinion, a little bit too much. Yeah, I I remember I was listening to listening to the uh, Low Post podcast with my uh, brother. Must have been four or five years ago, and he said um, putting a basketball team together. He said it's chemistry, not math. <laughs> well, that can be the case. I would think that if I was talking about anybody doing anything, the chemistry of a team is always the best thing. And you can, you can, you can highlight people's strengths if you have the chemistry of it, and you can negate their weaknesses if you have got the proper chemistry to go along with your team. Yeah. So, <clears throat> just you know, building on that, um, where you know, I was I was pretty optimistic. Um, coming into this season because you know I figured you know what mm -hmm. I what I do every every season is I assume that um, health isn't going to be an issue but you know I'm looking at these guys um, you know Smart and Tatum and Brown and Williams and they are guys that are you know they've got a track record of working on their game you know they're not you know they're not content to be you know where they were the year before mm -hmm. And I'm looking at that, and I'm th thinking these guys are young. They're on the upswing. You know, they've got to improve, you know, from, you know, last year to this year. And, I mean, just, you know, what's your, what's your take on, uh, on the team? Well, I think that with this team, I, I, the personnel you talk about, Tatum and Brown, mm -hmm. exceptional players. Uh, you know, they understand the game in, in a great degree. And, or, or really how to, you know, with their skills. But what I think about when I talk about Tatum and Brown, I think about two things. You've seen Tatum and Brown play probably about, I'd say right now, about 900 games. But you tell me the one time you've seen Tatum or Brown walk up to somebody in 900 games and say, if you do that again, I'm going to knock you out. That to me is like that, and, and and I'm not saying they have to be the meanest people in the world, mm -hmm. but every great player in the league has a tendency to have a little nasty in them, and that's what I want from both of them. Somebody tried to tell me, well, maybe it was where you know Tatum was raised. I said he was raised in St. Louis. <laughs> he wasn't raised in Hamptons. I mean, like he's in the Hamptons or something. No, so his his game. You know, you just have to be a little bit more nasty. And then that's going to equate to the other players below him getting that degree of nastiness. Uh, you know, Marcus Smart can't be the only person that you have that, you know, you have a sign in your house saying, beware a dog. Well, mm -hmm. Marcus is that dog. You got to have some other players on your team with that kind of nastiness about them. And, and, and those two players, as great as they are, and I think they're great players. They have to get that that thing of nastiness. The only other thing I think when I talk about Tatum and Brown is what is the difference when you look at it? Are they the same players when you look at them at the end of the day? Do you have to go out? Or are they going to be content? To, can they make the next make that guy beside them better? And what I see is that they are almost a carbon copy. They both are jump shooters. There are times when Brown will probably accelerate a little bit more towards the hole, but um, 
they have to have some, I guess, some differences in their games to, I guess, coexist. I look at myself during the 80s and I look at my, my entire team. You know, Larry was completely different from Kevin. I was completely uh, different than Chief. So we had, you know, all this stuff that was different that made us great collectively. And we could put those things together. But Brown and Tatum being essentially the same player, where do you see that uh, that going in? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's something that I hadn't really, you know, thought about. Um, and, you know, just looking at that, um, one of the things that um, another one of the writers at Celtics blog that we were uh, talking about is just that when, you know, if you, if these guys, because it's, it's one of the things that bothers me about like Tatum in particular is that if he very obviously commits that he's going to keep the ball, I mean, he's doing the defense's work for him. And yeah. somebody, somebody pointed out that it can take a long time for guys that have been brought up, work on your game, work on your game, work on your game to learn how to involve other people and that it's, you know, it's not necessarily a, a, an easy process, but um, I mean, I think that's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the easy process. Yeah. I don't think it's the easy process. I think that he is still learning the game, but as you're saying, I think in the last maybe, maybe six or seven games, he's been committed a lot more to driving and maybe dishing out uh, and to guys who have to be able to knock down shots. So, you know, I, I think that he is on that page. Can he grow to that player? I think that's the thing that we're, that we're all going to have to watch and watch from afar. Uh, skill-wise, there are things he does, but you think about the great teams in this league now and great players in this league. Golden State, they move that basketball so it's like hot potatoes. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, defensively, the easiest way to play defense is to get entrenched. When mm -hmm. the ball is one area, your defense becomes stronger. It, it, it's, it's like watch, putting down cement and watching mm -hmm. that hard. Now, when you first put down the cement, you know, you can you can run through it, but after a while, it starts to get solid, and you, mm -hmm. you don't. There's no place to go. I think because of the lack of ball movement, sometimes there's just no place to go. Yeah, yeah, and and that that's something that like you know, early on in Brad Stevens' um, tenure, because like I went to South Dakota State. I'm in Sioux Falls, and I went to mm -hmm. South Dakota State, and so I've got kind of this like mid major. Um, you know, preference for, for college ball. And that was one of the things that you just, you knew was going to work um, against um, like the high major teams was ball movement. If you ran a motion mm -hmm. offense, the defense can't get set. And if they can't get set, then your all American center, you know, can't stuff you, you know, at the basket because he has to, he has to keep moving and, and, it's something that, you know, um, when, like, the two things that I like to see is, you know, defense where they, you know, the whole team moves as a unit, you know, everybody, 
there's they're not leaving a gap because they've got they know their rotations and see an offense where the ball finds the open shooter you know i mean those are those are the two things that i mean want seeing a guy do something cool one-on-one i mean you know that's amazing but it's a team sport you know and that's that's kind of how i how i enjoy it yeah well there are not a lot of steph curry's in this world yep who get the ball and even with him he moves so well without the ball that uh, you know it's hard to to guard him now when he has the ball in his hands times what happens with brown and tatum they're dribbling in one spot you have to go north-south. You can't mm-hmm. go east-west. Go east-west, you're not going anyplace without a bounce. Mm-hmm. North-south, you're attacking the rim. So, you know, I, I do totally agree in, in that assessment. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, you know, and what what I, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because one of the things that, like, I always liked about um, the knock on Kevin Garnett, you know, the knock on Kevin Garnett, was that he would talk a lot of talk, but he wouldn't back it up with, you know, by, by you know, doing something physically to somebody. He would just, you know, run his mouth and run his mouth and run his mouth. And, and you know, what, what struck me about people making that complaint is, you know, if you, if you take a swing at somebody, you're out of the game. And that's, you've hurt mm-hmm. your team. But if you, if you can, you know, get that guy and that was one of the things that you know I just like to see from smart is to see him learn how to control and and use his aggression to up to a point where it hurts the other team not to the point where it hurts his team you know yeah there have been times when Marcus has gone over the over the cross the line uh I remember when he was down in San Antonio and and uh Matt Barner kind of wound up and, and hit him in the man area. And I was like, whoa, that was that was crazy. And I remember it being on video uh, in the arena and every man in the arena went, ooh, when he, when he hit the collective groan uh, mm-hmm. in the building. But um, I, I think that in that case, because Marcus does cross the line sometimes, as much as that, might hurt this team. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think it's a betterment for the team because you don't have anybody setting that fire. Yeah, you know you yeah. have to you have to have an edge. You have to have a fire, and he's your fire starter. Uh, and because of that, if you watch Tatum, if you watch Brown, and you watch them interact with Marcus guys have a tendency to get pumped up that much more. So there are things about him I, I agree, but he's the one guy I think that I don't even know if I want to cut the edge off of it because mm-hmm. of who he and what he what he brings to this team. Yeah, he's, you know, and that's, that's one of the things, just um, my dad uh, grew up a Celtics fan. Um, he played, um, he played high school basketball and, um, he was following uh, um, John Havlicek while he was still at Ohio State. And uh, so he ended up, he was a Celtics fan out in the middle of South Dakota in the 50s. And um, one of the things that we talk about is there's no, you know, there's no um, go-to guy. There's nobody that's like, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and it's kind of you know what I look at is like it took it took Kevin Durant a while to get you know where he needed to be and of course you can look at LeBron and it mm-hmm. wasn't until the you know the 20 2012 uh well 2010 to 2012 where he finally got mad enough um about things to where you know about where he where his team was at and and where what he was able to achieve that he actually did something about it you know and that was he was he was six years in at that point wasn't it It was the beginning of his sixth year um 2010 yeah 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 i think his legacy at that time say he never leaves cleveland probably Mm -hmm. never won the championship yeah, uh, you never went even when he left Cleveland, people said, well, he, he left Cleveland, he left them high and dry. Well, by leaving them high and dry, they were able to get Kyrie Irving. So mm-hmm. that was another thing that people don't talk about, about him leaving <laughs> and uh, where his team was going to be and, and, and what he left for, for his club. Yeah, well, that's kind of what that reminds me of is when whenever you don't hear it as much, but that whole – um, Kevin McHale to Danny Ainge a favor with the KG trade and what I whenever I hear that what I like to say is you know uh, the Timberwolves got a pick back in that that they could have used on Steph Curry wow and they picked um, Johnny Johnny Flynn Johnny Flynn instead hey, yeah 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 I mean, you know. it's, but you, you you know it's just like the picks you never know who they're what they're going to be or how they might be. I mean, you think of, you know, the Celtics getting Jason Tatum and Philadelphia mm-hmm. going out and 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 getting um gosh, I'm I'm forgetting his name Folks. now. Yeah, Markel Folks. And you're going, that that wasn't that wasn't a good good trade or a pick. <laughs> or you also think about uh, you know, during during the 80s when uh, we got uh, Kevin McHale and, and Robert Parrish uh, for Joe mm-hmm. Barry Carroll. And, you know, that, that had to be the deal of the century. I mean, Joe Barry Carroll turned out to be an all-star yep. player, but you're still talking about guys who were Hall of Famers, two Hall of Famers for mm-hmm. a guy all-star. I think you'd take that trade all day. I mean, I even yep. did it. Talked to Robert Parrish about it on my podcast, and uh, initially, when I was, I was actually approached by Golden State. Um, maybe two weeks before that trade went down, and they came to Charlotte and they said, "You know what we're going to do? We're going to offer you a free agent contract, and our lineup is going to be is going to be you, Robert Parrish." And, and this kid named Kevin McHale. And I was like, okay, I didn't know Kevin. And, um, mm-hmm. and the next thing I know, they had made the, the trade and, and, and Golden State took the first pick, Celtics took the third pick, and, and Robert Parrish came along with that, and Kevin McHale came along with that, and, and the, le- uh, the rest is history. So you never can tell about who you're drafting and how you're drafting and you love, sometimes love to go right back and reshuffle the deck, but uh, unfortunately you can't do it. I mean, I'm sure right now if Portland could do it all over again, Michael Jordan probably would have been their pick instead of uh, uh, Sam Bowie. Uh, and yep. I, think, I think it was, who was it? It was Michael Thompson or it was 
there was somebody who was there at that time uh, before Michael got in the league and took out an ad in the uh, Portland paper saying, you know, you need to get Michael Jordan. He said, if we get Michael <laughs> Jordan and Clyde Drexler together, they will dominate uh, for the next 10 to 15 years. And yeah, but they, but sometimes management knows better than, than, than mm-hmm. the player. And, and uh, that's, that's just sometimes unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. That like, I mean, cause you can, you know, you go back and you know, Greg Oden instead of Kevin Durant and um, um, you know, the, the, uh, when you look up in the, cause that's one of the things that like, you know, people like to write history in reverse and with the warriors, you know, the warriors got lucky on two different things. Um, Steve Kerr turned out to be an extremely good coach, which I don't think anybody could have, you know, said that for a certainty before he got mm-hmm. the job. And, um, when when they drafted Harrison Barnes and then I think they took Draymond Green as insurance on Harrison Barnes because they're like I mean they're almost identical um you know height weight you know position and you know they they got the order flipped on that <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those, those things are in and and you look at and drafts and all that stuff yeah they're they're so cool to kind of look back on and say, what would happen? Mine to me is even looking at what would have happened if Larry Bird hadn't been drafted the year before and him imagine mm-hmm. same year and the Lakers had the first pick in the draft. Who do the Lakers take? Yeah. You know, that would have been, that would who have been do, really who the, Yeah. Who do the Lakers pick at that time? Yeah. Cause, um, you know, the, the thing about Magic and Bird is Magic had a much better team around him when mm-hmm. they won the, uh, you know, and and uh, that would have been, that would have been a tough call. I mean, I, you know, whenever that, whenever that comes up, I said the only difference between Magic and Bird was health, you know, that was, that was the difference between the two of them. Um but like, you know, I I missed your your whole um, career with the Celtics because my my dad they ended up we ended up having six kids in the family and so if it was bedtime for one of us it was bedtime for all of us so even if you like basketball you couldn't stay up to watch the game I, so uh, I under I understand that I had a daughter who used to hate yeah. that. And my son, he would get tired. He was there about two years difference. He would get tired. He'd be like, Daddy, I want to go to sleep now. Because I, I would just burn him out all day. He was just running <laughs> day. So around about 8 o'clock, he'd eat, and he was just exhausted. So <laughs> as soon as he'd say, I'm sleepy, I'm like, okay, Morgan, it's time for you to go to sleep. And she'd be like, oh, <laughs> go to sleep. I'm not tired right now. So. I, I do understand that a lot about kids. Yeah. So yeah, the first the first real clear memory that I have of the Celtics was um them winning the title in eighty six and then Len Bias dying. You know, that mm-hmm. was that was where I that was where I came in at. And you know, that's just you know 
Yeah, yeah. another uh, another what if? What yeah. if Levi's had not done what he did, and uh, you know been around? It would have it would have lengthened the career of Larry and and Kevin. It would have taken the load off their shoulders a lot more. So I think that that would have been a good thing to do. And I just raised my hands and my my. My camera says something about raising my hands. With, I don't know what that was at the bottom. That was interesting. Um, well, like on that, one of the things that, you know, from the book and, you know, if it's, if it's you know, sensitive or you don't really um, want to talk about it, that's, that's okay. But one of the things from when you, when you were playing is, you know, cocaine was a big yeah. thing. And, you know, why, why do you think that was never appealing to you, you know? Um, because when I was in college, I just wasn't like that. Uh, I had a buddy of mine. Uh, he turned out to be the best man in my wedding. He turned out to be one of my best friends. And I was never a follower. And I got to college. And he was the kind of guy that I gravitated to because he just had so much fun, whereas... Some people had to go out and drink and, and, mm -hmm. and get high. He had so much fun just being himself. And that is the thing I kind of adopted. I'm like, man, that is so cool that, you know, you don't. And so when I got to the pros, um, if I didn't have that kind of mentality, I could have been like that because I was offered, you know, cocaine several times as a rookie and, uh, you know, Come on, let's do this. And and the thing I didn't have, I didn't have a support system either. Um, uh, my support system as a as a player was you think about okay, you got other rookies around you. Well, the next guy he was five years away from me uh, as in his fifth or sixth year when my rookie year. So I I just had to go on on my my own standards. And my standards at that time was I didn't. I didn't need to get high to have fun. I was already in the, in the NBA that people, a dream that, you know, people just, that people dream about, that I dreamed about. Uh, and to be making money and having fun, I didn't need to <laughs> you know, utilize any kind of drugs to make me higher or, or make me lower or whatever it was. I just had fun being in the league and, and being with my friends and playing ball. So that didn't affect me in that way. I mean, there was the, the one story which is actually in the book. Um, there was a gentleman that came actually to my apartment uh, um, and late at night, and he was with the Houston Rockets and came and knocked on my door. That's when play team stayed overnight. And mm -hmm. literally, you know, he came to my apartment with another guy and knocked on the door at like 2 in the morning. I didn't even know he was, you know, this guy lived there, but – he was like, open the door. I was like, who is it? He's like, um, from the Houston Rockets. I just say player from the Houston Rockets. And he goes, uh, oh, as a matter of fact, I can say his name, Tom Henderson. Tom Henderson from Houston Rockets. I'm like, Tom Henderson, what you doing out here at, you know, in my apartment? Because I lived about 20 miles outside the city at that time. And so I opened the door. It was him, and he's with another guy. And I was like, Okay, what's up? They like you got any uh, bacon powder? I'm like, no. 
They had no bacon pile. I'm like, damn, they cooking cakes at this time of night? What, what are they doing? My mind was like that. <laughs> then he goes, the next thing he says, uh, you got any ammonia? I was like, damn, what they cooking? Are they cleaning? I'm like, what, what, what are they doing? I had no idea. And I, I closed the door. And next day I go back to my apartment. I go, you know, I see my, my teammates the next day. And Houston had gone. They had left. And um, I was like, you know, Tom Henderson was at my apartment. They were looking for uh, ammonia and baking powder. And I was like, I don't know what they were doing. And somebody said, you're an idiot. They're, they're smoking crack. <laughs> I did not have a clue. I didn't, didn't, you, yeah, I could have been knocked over with a feather because I did not. That's how naive I was to the whole drug situation around the NBA at the time. It just wasn't me. Yeah, it you know it really seems like there there was a um, like a core that kind of kept kept that going for a while because I mean it it stopped uh, eventually. I you know I don't know to what extent you know Len Bias scared people straight on it or you know um, David Stern just like making a, an example out of guys like Roy Tarpley, but um, it just, it just seems like there were some people that kind of kept that going and were, you know, always around one team or another, you know, offering it, but it's, I mean. You had those, you had those hanger-ons, hanger-oners, you know, who would be around and, you know, want to party with the team and bring girls and bring drugs. And, and that was just a, that was, I guess, a, a fun thing to do for some guys. To me, it really wasn't besides, you know, you know, exploring all the different cities I was in, meeting all kind of different people. That to me, was really the cool part, but uh, some guys wanted more. Um, there was one night in St. Louis that I remember we, I was, Actually, we had an exhibition game. We had Marvin Barnes uh, with us. And Marvin was notorious for his drug use. And it was my, maybe we got back from the game, and that was a place where he, for his career, first started. And he had been doing really well with the Celtics. He had been cut by several teams. But he went to St. Louis, and that night, i tell you, my, they started partying at 1 o'clock in the morning. And our wake-up call was six because we were catching an early morning flight. Mm -hmm. The music was still pumping at 6 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and I didn't see Marvin Barnes again. I think he might have came later on, but he, he definitely missed the next game because uh, just the whole thing about uh, that, that, that atmosphere of mm -hmm. what he was doing and how it surrounded him and, and, and what it did for him or what it didn't do for him. Well, and that's, you know, one of the things that, that um, I was kind of thinking about with, um, you know, what came up um, a couple months ago, maybe, maybe it's been that long, like with Tony Allen and, and those guys with the uh, um, pension um, fraud. And, and uh, I know it was something that um, like Satch Sanders um, was big on and, you know, going off the book, I, I guess, you know, him pretty well. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But uh, just, you know, how it just doesn't seem 
fair, especially with, cause like, you know, from your book, when you were in, when you were in high school, you played like every sport. I mean, you weren't having basketball, you know, the center of your life from age five on up. And I just, I feel for a lot of these guys because, you know, wherever they end up out, you know, the guys that get a D1 scholarship, but can't go, you know, pros overseas or in the NBA at some point, they're out. And I just, I feel bad because they, it just, it doesn't feel like they've gotten a good preparation for, you know, for life afterwards, you know. I think you're right in the fact that uh, AAU has really created some monsters and you don't have people telling you no. And your focus from the time you are five years old is all you do is, is play basketball and travel. You know, when I was in Kinston, North Carolina, that's the last thing we did. We mm -hmm. played basketball. Then it was baseball season. Then it was football season. Then it was going to the guy's house, getting pairs or, or you know, sh yeah, just running and getting on our bicycles. Mm -hmm. So we had so many more, I had so many more interests in my life other than just being so focused and dominated by basketball. You know, even with that, I, I, and I've said this before, even playing with Larry Bird, maybe the worst thing could ever happen to you. And that was a two-way, uh, there, there's, a, there's a side to that by me saying that, and the fact that you can never get to Larry's level. It's just like I heard Phil Jackson say this to Kobe Bryant. Kobe was complaining because he said, these guys just don't want to work hard. They just don't want to. And Phil Jackson finally had to say, look, nobody is going to outwork you. You are consumed by the game. And the game is consumed by you. And that's the same way I felt with Larry, that he was consumed by the game and the game consumed him. So there wasn't another side of his personality or that he really was able to show people. And later on in life, you saw that Kobe Bryant Unfortunately, I mean, he had so many more gifts to give out, uh, but he was so focused on just being that basketball player. And when I say that about Larry is that, yeah, I could raise to a level and finals MVP and add great games, but I couldn't, I could never get to that level that Larry Bird was at because he was just dominant. He dominated, the game dominated him and he dominated the game. And that's what he was more, he was more focused on. Yeah. And, you know, I think that goes back to so, sort of like what you were talking about with like Tatum and Brown and with a lot of these guys, I mean, um, and one of the things that I um, talked about when I was writing for another blog, when um, um, the team USA in 2019, was it 20? Um, and uh, you know, one of the questions I, I asked after that kind of, they kind of fizzled out is it's like, you know, do these guys, they like winning, they like doing what they're doing for a living, but you know, how much do they hate losing? Cause you know, that's, I think that's a lot of what, you know, drove um, guys like bird and magic is, is they hated losing more than they loved winning. I mean, like, um, uh, the, when the game was ours, like in that book, and you get a sense about how, you know, they were, they were eaten up, you know, when they, when they lost. And, and it just, you know, 
I think, you know, like you mentioned with Kobe and, you know, Jordan's the same way. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of these guys, you know, you wonder how do they, um, how do they let that go at the end of their career? Yeah. You know? Well, I think that I, you're right. I think you have to have another outlet and you could see at the end, you could see Kobe's outlet. If it was the WNBA, it was his, his child, uh, him going in and uh, competing again when he won the, was the Academy award uh, for short stories or, uh, I love basketball and basketball, whatever that story, that movie, uh, short little story you had. That to me, those are those are gifts that you know maybe because he was able to, unlike some people, to be in that compartment of just totally being in the basketball. And then you could see him change gears. I didn't see the change in Larry in that way. You know, he still loved the game. He, he loved being around it. But I look at Larry now is more of um, recluse. I mean, you know, of of uh, do you see him at the you know our games? Or we we know we were trying to have a a reunion and we didn't get Larry on board to have the uh, 1981 you know uh, reunion. So it's just those you know, and we we're only only gonna do a Zoom call anyway, just to have everybody mm-hmm. up there. So I I, I kind of. Those things again to me, when you don't have them, that to me is a, I, I guess that's the short side of life that I really don't want to have. Yeah, yeah, and you know, um, one of the things like with um, you know just players getting prepped for um, for the game and and not much else and then and then you're out of it and I mean there's only there's only so much that that you can do you know as a league or you know even as a team because I mean I know you know the the Celtics at least are you know kind of a you know if you need you know if you need a job you know like they they um had Jojo White, you know, on as basically just an ambassador for years. And, but um, one thing that, uh, that I wanted to ask about, um, cause it's something that, that um, I, I feel kind of strongly about, cause like uh, is Dennis Johnson and, you know, DJ, the fact that he was dead before he was in the hall of fame. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you something. This picture I'm arching up behind you, not the the one with the uh, boy, yep. the and the and the uh, little boy and his dad. That picture was done by Dennis Johnson's wife. She was an artist. So you said this is why Dennis is still like you know one of my best friends. He was one of my best friends. He was he was the one that was really messy when we go places together. And and so yeah, he was. Um, such a dominant player and I watched him become harness a lot of that energy where he had in Seattle mm-hmm. and then traded him. He was a finals MVP and we had one game where he's one for 15 or something, couldn't make a shot and then came back the next year and won it. And then I looked and went to, went down to Portland and not Portland, but to Phoenix got traded down there. 
and um, just didn't really fit. And then he came to us as a player. And I think that we were able to kind of harness all that energy he had. And uh, man, he was, he, he, he could be just brilliant. And he wasn't the best shooter, but he was going to knock down clutch shots. Um, I, and I think it happened. One of the examples I always tell people is Dennis Johnson was him and Casey Jones were going back with a, you know, one day they were arguing about something in front of all of us. And we knew DJ was wrong. And a lot of times players will get an amen corner after they argue with the coach. And he came and started talking to us. And me in particular, I said, you're wrong. He's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not used to this. Me being wrong. The players are both like, hey, no, you're wrong. And you're going to apologize. And he ended up apologizing. And that made him part of the team. It made him accountable to us, accountable to the coaches. And he became, I watched him become this talent to a really great, boy, great player who was able to get some things going. Yeah. See, a question that I've been, you know, and, and it's, it's tough to get a hold of him, but, um, I've been trying to get a hold of uh, Bill Russell and that I don't know that anybody has ever asked him. And it's like, it's the only question I want to ask him because I don't think there's anything else that I can think of that he hasn't already said, but he's the guy that drafted Dennis Johnson. He drafted Dennis Johnson in the second round in 76. Mm, okay. And I, I want to know what he saw in DJ because, you know, that, that was a pretty high pick to use on a guy who had played one year at Pepperdine and, or Pepperdine and had been, you know, in junior college two years before that. Before that, he was working in a factory, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I think you look at it the same way with Dennis Rodman. Why was Dennis Rodman taking where he was taking? You know, what did you see? I remember – talking to Isaiah Thomas about this um, uh, with Detroit, with the Pistons. And he said, and this is when I was playing, he said, Max, we got a guy for you guys. <laughs> Dennis Robin, he is, he is a, just a wild man. He defends. He's not a shooter, but he put So what would you think that, why would Detroit take Dennis Rodman with the pick they took him with? And, you know, have John Sally. So those, those things mm-hmm. are always curious when you think about players and who they are and, and how they're picked in the draft and, and what guys actually think about them. Yeah. Yeah, I um, – because, like, like, DJ, I mean, one of the things um, when people talk about Bill Russell and, you know, the, the anytime anybody wants to take Russell down a peg is – they talk about how he wasn't, you know, he didn't do, you know, I like to look at DJ as an example of a guy that they didn't need, you know, the Celtics did not need him to score. They did not bring him to the uh, team to score. They brought him to stop Tony and then uh, Magic Johnson, you know, that was his, that was why he was there. And that's, you know, he was on the all defense, uh, the NBA's all defensive team for like nine nine straight years, I think. Mm-hmm. 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 He was, 
it, you know, I was so happy when they, you know, put him in the Hall of Fame. And I, I, I'm like you. I kind of hate the fact that he never was able to see that himself. And even to the point of, you know, like JoJo White going into the Hall of Fame in the latter part of his life when he was more frail than anything else. JoJo was a 10-time All-Star or something like that, 9 to 10 times All-Star. Uh, you know, a just, you know, a finals MVP. Uh, you know, he he was he was Mr. Celtic along with John Havlicek. And for him not to go into the Hall of Fame, that to me was was a travesty when I look at other people going in. Yeah. Yeah, that um, um, same thing with uh, like Sam Jones and uh, mm -hmm. Satch Sanders um, made it in as a contributor. Mm -hmm. and, and he was, you know, one of the things was he was – like he was basically Bill Russell on the perimeter. They both knew that like what you do on defense is, you know, and I mean, it was something like one of the things I, I liked watching when Isaiah Thomas was on the Celtics was, um, you know, he was at least, he knew basic defensive principles. Like he's not going to be able to stop the point guard he's up against, but he knows that the point guard prefers to go right so he's going to take away the right and he's going to make him go left. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was, that was like Satch's whole deal is I know what you want to do and you're not going to do it. I'm, I'm good enough at what I do so that you're going to have to do something you're not comfortable with. And, you know, you're going to miss. Yeah. This is a great, great dude. When you talk about him, I remember, remember Satch, you talked to me when I was playing. And he said, always add something else to your game. You remember, Satch was my, he was, he was the assistant coach under Heinsohn initially. And then Heinsohn got fired. He became the head coach. But he would talk to me. He said, you know, you need to add something to your game all the time. And he's like, you know, you have a great shot from 15 feet away. And my smart ass wouldn't listen to him. And because I always tell him, I'm like, Satch, why am I shooting from 15 feet away when these guys can't stop me from five feet away? <laughs> so, but it would have been it would have been something else I could have put into my game, which would have expanded my game. But I think that part of my game shrunk, especially offensively, is when we got Larry. Because the year before that, before we got Larry, I was averaging 19 points a game and had started to expand my game. But when we got Larry, you know, my numbers, my touches, all those things that people like to talk about now just went down and down. And Bill Fitch actually told me, he said, we're not running any plays for you. We're gonna, you're going to get all your, all your points. You're going to get on the fast break and offensive rebounds. I averaged like, you know, I shot about 61% from the field. First forward to lead the league in, in that, and I did it twice. Uh, and then a reduction of touches, but it also probably stymied anything else that I was going to do because of Larry was ball dominant at that time. And yeah. it was it was a good thing him being ball dominant. He's not complaining about that, but we had 
him ball dominant. We had Nate Archibald ball dominant. And the rest of us just kind of weaved and, and went what we need to get to. Yep. Yeah. And, and like some of that, you know, one of the things about when you talk about guys, you know, making the guys around him better is, is like, you know, a situation where, hey, your touches are going to go down. But when you get the ball, it's you're going to be getting the ball in your spot. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. Th those, yeah. Those are things that really, you know, really, really help. I, I laugh because I think I've, <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask me like, well, Max, you know, you're the only finals MVP that isn't in the Hall of Fame. I was like, well, because I don't belong there. <laughs> I say, to me, it's like there, there's a level to it. I was a really good player, and there were times when I would allow being great. But it's just another level that I'm not – that I wouldn't feel comfortable with. And for people to even talk about it to me makes me uncomfortable because – I look at the guys who are Hall of Famers, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, that guy was a Hall of Famer. This guy. Now, it, I laughed, though, when Dino Roger got in the Hall of Fame <laughs> as, a foreign, as a foreign player. And I always remember telling him, the reporter told me, Dino Roger got in. Now, I like Dino, right? like Dino. Mm -hmm. But Dino Roger, if he had been in the NBA the whole time, would not have been a Hall of Famer. Right. So I remember telling the reporter, you know what? I'm from France right now. That's where I'm from. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a Frenchman now. So those things are always funny to me. But again, it, it they're just levels to it, mm -hmm. and they're great players that you know I look at that and going, man, this guy you know should have been the Hall of Fame or this guy. And I remember hearing uh, Steve Kerr saying, "Well, Draymond Green is a Hall of Famer. He's one of the top 75 players of all time." I'm like, whoa, 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 coach. I know you like to do, and you coach mm -hmm. him, but let's, let's back away from that. 75 was the greatest of all time. No, I, you know, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh-uh. And I don't hate the guy. I think he's yeah. great at what he does. He's a facilitator. And I think the example I would give with Draymond is when you lost Kerr, I mean, when you lost, um, when you, you lost Curry and you lost at the same time Thompson, how many points did Draymond Green average that year? Did he go to 20? No. no. Draymond Green, didn't he average double figures? I mean, we're, we're asking you right now. This is your team right now. Okay, yep. show us what you can do. So he is a, a great field of glue guy. Great field of glue yep. guy. Look, yep. But when you say, but that would be my example. When you had the chance to take this team on and for it to be your team, with those two guys gone, what did you really do? Mm, not much nothing yeah yeah and that's like one of the things like like i what i like to say about jay crowder is you know jay crowder is never is never going to carry a team to a title right. Right. but a team that wins you know more than one title is going to have a guy like jay crowder on the team you know and that's you know that's that's the difference and and i think draymond is another example like that you need a guy like him on your team, but it's never going to be his team, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think the funny thing you bring up, Jay, Crow Jay Crowder, and just how mad Jay Crowder was uh, when the team went out and they, they started making moves and 
they went to Utah and said, you know, we 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 have a preference right now. Jay Crowder, you know, we're not going to, we're gonna get Gordon Hayward. And uh, man, he was he was pissed off when uh, Gordon Hayward came in here and the fans started start cheering for him. And he said it was a total sign of disrespect. And you kind of looked at it you, from afar and you can't like, but now if you look back on it in the prism of of time, you're going, well, Jay Crowley probably would have been a better player than Gordon Hayward for this particular team yep. with his toughness and his and his ability to stay healthy. Uh, you know, Gordon Hayward was a is a great player. There's no doubt. But fitting that build at that time probably been a little bit better. I mean, when you think about what Jay Crowder has done and the teams he's been on and how much better those teams have become. Yeah, I think he's he's um, been on uh, uh, finals teams the last two years, hasn't he? He was. He was Suns last year in Miami the year before, wasn't yeah. he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he was on a pretty good team when he was in Utah. Yep, and that's so, like that's one yeah. of the things that I think, you know, Ainge might have learned a little bit after the fact with, you know, bringing on Irving and, and Hayward is that, you know, you get a whole bunch of talented guys and it's not a given that they're all going to be able to mesh into a, a great team. And, and I think that's a great point about Crowder is, you know, Hayward, one-on-one Hayward versus Crowder, Hayward's probably going to win, but it's not a one-on-one game. It's five-on-five, and if you've got, you know, um, but one of the things that bothered me, like, from a fan perspective was the number of guys that got after Hayward and Horford for not padding their numbers because, like, Horford, I mean, you know, he when he was here on a max contract and people were were – you know, complaining about his numbers. And it's like, look, the guy does not make a bad move on the court. That's how he's earning his pay. He's earning his pay because he makes, he makes everything easier on defense and because he does not do stupid things on offense. You know, that, that guy is, you know, you know, worth more than because like, you know, one from one team to another, the, teams in the NBA all score about the same number of points a game and they all run about an eight or nine man rotation. So who cares where the points come from? You know, you want to be able to win. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that'd be true. At the end of the day, it all boils down to winning basketball games and there are components with certain guys who just help your teams become better. Al Horford leaving the Celtics, that wasn't a good thing, but I understood why he went with the money. But, and then he goes to Philly and Philly just wanted him because he was able to get help slow <laughs> Joel and B. They paid him a hundred million dollars. Then he leave, they get unhappy. They send him to um, uh, OKC and OKC essentially says, look, you, we know you're making $25 million a year, whatever it was at that time. No, go home. We don't even want. We don't even want you to play, <laughs> and just go, just stay in shape. And then they trade him, and it's just the, the league is a funny league, and that you yeah. you look at how 
think the ebbs and flows of you look at what's going on right now with Kimber Walker, whereas people mm -hmm. were were in an uproar when they when the Celtics traded Kimber. Oh my mm -hmm. God, traded Kimber! I can't believe you. You know that that. And he goes, and then he comes back to New York, and now they're taking him out of the rotation. He's not. He they're saying that you know. So and I love Kimber. I think he's a he was a he was a great player, but. I just believe at the end of the day, sometimes even going back to a place that you were great and be 10 years or 12 years ago, people's expectations are the same. They mm -hmm. look, they're looking for cardiac Kimber. And cardiac mm -hmm. Kimber is no more because of his age and his body and the wear and tear that he's had in the yeah. NBA. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, looking at, at Kimba, I just, what I, you know, kind of like what happened uh, with you, um, I'm wondering if he played through a lot of injuries that he shouldn't have when he was at Charlotte because he was, he, you know, you know, played 70 plus games a season. And then he comes to the Celtics and within a year, I mean, his body's just given up on him. And I mean, I, I hate to see that um, to guys. Cause I mean, that used to be like, you know, when you got into your early thirties in the NBA, I mean, that was like, you know, I remember when they did the um, retirement tour for uh, Kareem and, and, um, or no, it was for Dr. J and the Celtics, I think got him a rocking chair. Rocking. Somebody got him a rocking chair and he was what? 35, 37. Yeah, something like that. And and now, you know, you plan as a player, you plan on being able to play up to your mid and late 30s. And that's like the expectation. And it just, it hurts to see good guys that, you know, the advances in medicine can't extend their career. You know, Well, the advances in medicine, nutrition, uh, travel, all these things have to do with, the longevity of a guy's career. Um, when I first got in the NBA, they would, the, the team essentially would tell you, don't lift weights. We don't want you. You don't need muscles because now you're going to lose your flexibility. And then you look at it and go, man, what a archaic thing that was because it would have made you stronger, would have made you quicker, you would have more flexibility. But teams at that time looked at it that way. And even the nutrition, um, I always tell people, game seven versus the Lakers in 1984, my pregame meal was we had McDonald's across the street. I had a big, <laughs> a supersized fry, an apple pie, and an orange soda. That was my pregame. I look at now what these guys eat. It's like they have salmon, and they have vegetables, and they have all this stuff pregame, and then postgame, and all. It's just like, it, the, the way the nutrition is, is completely different. So, you know, even Mike Zarin told, said that to me. He said, Max, he said, you would have probably been a better player if your nutrition would have been better. I'm like, well, Mike, how can you be a better, better than the Finals MVP and win a championship? <laughs> I don't know how you, how you do that. And I laugh at him, but I understand that he's kind of nitpicking, saying that. And probably longevity of my career mm -hmm. probably would have been better. Uh, with the advances of medicine, well, even with the Celtics, the way they um, the way they did physicals at the time, uh, we had Dr. Tom Silva, and I remember our physicals essentially was okay. Come in the room, you're next. You see the doctor. Hi, how's your summer? Good. 
All right, drop your pants. All right, cough. All right, let me touch your other testicle, cough. Okay, we have no hernia. Go out there and kill him. Have a great year, big fella. Yeah. <laughs> and that essentially, that was the physical. I didn't know what the real physical was till I got traded to the Clippers in 1985. I was like, what are we doing with all this? Are we, are we going out for the Olympics or are we just going to be basketball players? But you can see the difference in the way, you know, people – uh, you know, physicals for, for players. Yeah. And, you know, that that was one of the things in that book that just blew me away was finding out that the Clippers had a better um, uh, medical staff training much staff better. than the Celtics. Much and I was like, holy crap. I mean, I would have expected that, you know, you've got Red Arbach and that old, you know, rub some dirt on it, that it wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been at the top of the pile. But I'm like, there was that big of a gap. I mean, that's... That's crazy. Yeah. That was a big difference. Like I said, I did not get a true physical in the NBA, and that was in my eighth year until I got to the Clippers. That was the first time I actually had a real physical blood work and, and you know, uh, body fat and all these different things that went along with it. You know, I didn't get that until I got to the Clippers, but that, that was the way the Celtics operated at that time. It's like, you know, I look at guys now who have injuries and high ankle sprain. What the hell is that? And <laughs> you're going to be out for a week because you have tweaked your ham. You have a sore hamstring or sore knee. The NBA, everybody has sore knees during the 80s. Everybody's knees were sore from playing or, or, or this wasn't right. I mean, your body's never going to be right in the NBA, and you know, because you, you just put it through so much. Yeah, I remember um... – a beat reporter that um, uh, covered the uh, covered South Dakota State. He was at the NBA Combine um, a few years ago. Um, the year that uh, uh, the Bucks drafted Giannis, they drafted um, uh, SDSU kid in the second round, and um, so he was there covering the NBA Combine. And one of the things as he said was, you know, he couldn't believe the number of like ex players that he saw going around in orthopedic shoes. <laughs> it's like everybody's everybody they got them they got those big white shoes <laughs> well i just it's just the injuries that you look yep. at i even and i feel so bad for my my good buddy kevin McHale. yep uh, diagnosis on his ankle and for him to play he actually he should have probably had the operation to do something with the joint and all that but they fused his ankle together and Kevin walks with a, a he will for the rest of his life he'll walk with a limp. And is that a way to go through after you played your career to be mm -hmm. limping as you come into a room? Uh, you know, I'm fortunate right now, knock on wood, that you know I'm able to get <laughs> down. And, but I do see players from time to time, and you know they they have a lot of uh, a lot a lot of injuries, and and that's because of the wear and tear after mm -hmm. you know essentially a hundred games a year that you yep. put on body and the way the game was played at the time it was a lot more physical you know you could knock down a guy and, you know right now the, the game is watered down when it comes to physicality as strong as these players are they get they get stronger and there's less physical contact that doesn't yeah. make a lot you know so I, I do look at that and almost laugh yeah well and, and you played more minutes a game too yeah. You know, there was none of this 34 minutes, 32 minutes. It was 40 plus. But 
Um, so what, like, one of the things I was curious about is like, what would be, what would be something from the game um, when you played it that you would like to see back in the game right now? Um, the physicality of the game. I'd like to see uh, a lot more um, guys being able to set harder picks or, uh, you know, a guy to get hit every now and then. Matter of fact, I wouldn't have a, you know, I wouldn't be proposed with, I wouldn't oppose a uh, a little fisticuffs every now and then <laughs> just, to get the, just to get the juices flowing. <laughs> I mean, I don't want nobody hurt like a Kermit Washington yeah. uh, with we, we Rudy Tom Jonovich, but, you know, for the most part, you see fights in the NBA, there are no fights. I mean, yep. everybody went crazy over this LeBron James and Stewart. Oh, my mm-hmm. God, Stuart was after him. He went, if, if Stuart really wanted to hit him, he would have he got up and he would have swung on him. Mm-hmm. But he waited until he got about 10, 12 guys deep in front of him. And then he started charging him like Raging Bull and, and <laughs> running through the line like he was a Patriot, you know, uh, <laughs> a halfback or something. And so he didn't, he didn't really want to fight. You know, those are all essentially like wolf tickets. So I... I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of that in the game. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things, like, I think, um, you know, people don't, you know, don't realize or don't know about the whole Kevin McHale clothesline is there was nobody was assessed. uh, Nobody was ejected for that. I don't know. I don't even know if there was a technical on that, but I know, I know. No, no, there was no technical. Nobody got ejected, but that, that, game that changed the tenor of the game it changed the way the rules were because the next year they put all those rules in that um you know to uh so we wouldn't be playing uh wrench ball now it wasn't basketball it was wrench ball at the time so <laughs> the guy broke away that you're gonna do this to him and and the, the thing about it it's if you look at the video it scared kevin actually mm-hmm. when he yeah. grabbed kurt around the neck he wasn't grabbing them, trying to like just throw them mm-hmm. down. He grabbed them, but it wasn't that kind of uh, you know throwdown. And you look at Kevin; it was almost like he was backing away. Like most guys, they hit you mm-hmm. like that. They're gonna stand over you as you go yep. down. So uh, it wasn't. It, it really wasn't something that uh, you know Kevin mentioned. As I said, the the least physical guy on our team mm-hmm. would have. Kevin McHale. I could see <laughs> me do it. I could see Larry do it. Maybe Chief, ML. I could see a lot of guys doing Kevin was the last guy I would have said would have done that. And and the same thing I would have said about me in 1981 going into the stands in Philadelphia. People asked me about that. Oh, my God, you went to the stands against this fan, and what did he say? Really, I don't even know. It was just impulse. He said something like, get back in the fucking and they just registered and I charged back in. Some people I told showed this to Jason Tatum, uh, me going back in the stands, and he oh map I showed it, excuse me, Marcus Smart. And he's like, Whoa, he said, You the guy kicked out of the league forever. I said, probably <laughs> would have. But he said, Well, what happened? I said, nah, nothing happened. We just went back to playing. <laughs> you can't you you can't give me a, a technical for attacking a fan. And there was no room to throw a player out. 
And then, but the next year, that's when they put those things in. And the next year, when Kevin clotheslined them, that's when they start putting those those flagrant fouls in. And now, the flagrant foul to me is that to me is is almost a joke. I mean, I, I can understand sometimes, but if you barely touch a guy, a guy goes down, he gets hit near the eye, anything is that you know a flagrant one, a flagrant two, and and. And that to me, that 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 really is taken away from the physicality of the game because guys are afraid to knock somebody down now with the idea of being thrown out of, of a game. Yeah, you know, like that was something that was one of the things that I liked about Paul Pierce's game because you know Paul Pierce, I don't know if he was like the grandfather of all of the guys that drew fouls on three point shots from a herky motion, but. I never, it never bothered me that Pierce did that because the other way he drew fouls was he was not afraid to go into the lane and get the snot hit out of him and draw a foul that way. If he yeah, there were, there, there were many times Paul Pierce would come out and not have, you know, he wore a headband for a while. He wouldn't have the headband on. Somebody that knocked it off. So, yeah, Paul, Paul was in a, he was, he was old school. Paul is yeah. old school. And he could take that, that pounding. And he come back and just keep, you know, keep playing. And uh, to see him now, for him to be one of the top 75 players of all time, that to me, that is like, you know, it's like watching my child grow up because I was here when Paul first got here. And to see Paul grow from that kid from Compton area to Kansas to the Celtics to almost getting killed, getting stabbed, becoming a family man, and then a champion and the captain of the team. And now the 75, it, it is such a, um, uh, a roller coaster that I've seen Paul on. And uh, it, it's just, it was just great. Yeah. And uh, so one, uh, the other question is, um, what, uh, what part of the game today do you wish you had back in the, you know, when you were playing? Um, maybe just I would have I would have been forced to be out on the perimeter and shoot threes. Uh, I, I actually made I was one for it's like one for twelve. I really shot desperation, but I think the ones I shot I was maybe actually shot I was two for I mean I was one for five that I actually shot. So uh, that would have been the biggest thing. I would have probably been more of a perimeter shooter. Uh, now would they have taken my percentage down? Obviously, but uh, probably would have increased um, my level of efficiency when it comes to uh, making guys a little bit more accountable uh, of guarding me outside the paint. Yep. Yeah. That's and that's one of the things with like Warford on the, on offense is, you know, he is um, he's good at drawing guys. Out. You are a. You know what? You are so biased. You are a big <laughs> you, you can just tell it. You are a big Horford fan. And and I, I have and I happen to love Al myself. I love him for everything he does. And I get on Al sometimes about this. I want him to take more control, you know, uh, of plays out on the floor or getting his teammates fired up. And I've seen Al, I've seen Al do that a few times and a lot more now lately. I've talked to him about that. But uh, man, I am. So, I, but I can tell the bias in you. Mm -hmm. and, yep. And, and there's a bias in me in, in loving Al and what he does as a player because he is Al to me is um, 
He's ice cream. He's vanilla ice cream. He's not tutti fruity. He's not all these different flavors. Al is plain old damn vanilla. That's it's like okay, he might even have he might have some of the cocoa beans in it. Like you know, yeah. eventually got with Briar's ice cream as, yeah. as they start doing. I was gonna it, say like, he's yeah, but but nothing any more than that from Al. And and yeah. and I love Al for that. Yeah, he's Briar's vanilla. If he's vanilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're we and you and I probably well, I'm I'm a little bit older than you, but you do remember when Briars came in and going, what are these black mm -hmm. things in this ice cream? <laughs> yep. And then you're going, man, they're pretty good or whatever they are, <laughs> and they were the ones that kind of got things going the other way when it came to just eating ice cream. And that's why I look at Al. He's just he's plain old vanilla. He's just like kind kind of like he is a. Uh, I love this part. He's a poor man's Tim Duncan. That's who yep. he is. He's yep. going to block shots. He's going to run the floor. He's going to score for you. He's going to be tough in the paint. And he's never going to cause any problems. Yep. <laughs> and that's, that well, would be hell. And that was one of the things, like, with the 2018-2019 with the season. I got married in February of 2019. And with the way that the season went, I – I had not been able to pay a lot of attention to it because it was like newlyweds and all that stuff. And, and I was kind of like, well, at least I picked the right season to get married. Um, but one of the things, one of the things I noted about Al in that is like, you know, you had, you had the, you know, all of the chemistry issues, you know, Rozier's upset about getting knocked out of the starting lineup and Kyrie's, you know, he's checked out on the team at a certain point and they didn't really have anybody that had like the standing to just kind of, you know, whip everybody into shape and say, look at this, you know, we're going to go out on the court. And if you don't, you know, do your best and you don't do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to chew you out before the coach chews you out. Yeah. 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 And that that's true. I think that, and Al was one of the few people who had that kind of um, cachet when mm -hmm. it comes to longevity in this league, uh, getting paid and all that. So I, I do look at Al and I'm glad that he's taken that, uh, that stance now a little bit mm -hmm. more of being a, uh, a vocal leader. I mean, yep. some, some people lead by examples, but I would love to see Al be a little bit more vocal and there's several times I've saw him uh, when he's been like, let's play. I mean, <laughs> like, whoa, Al, whoa, whoa, back up there, big fella. So, I mean, but I, I did like it when Al did. <laughs> Man, that cat scared me coming up behind you like that. I was like, whoa. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I better let you go. You got a game to get ready for. And All right. All right. Well, enjoyed it. You know, hopefully you got everything you needed. Yeah, it was uh, it was really great um, connecting with you. All right. Well, anyway, we will. We will. I hope you have a good one. We'll talk to you later. All righty. We'll see you. Right. Bye bye.